Well, it is such a good thing for us to gather and to hear God's word uh, as we look tonight, uh, this morning, sorry, at um, Daniel chapter 8. Uh, I've done Daniel a lot as I've uh, been preaching for decades. Can't say I've really got to the second half of Daniel much, if at all. So this is sort of new territory for me, and I found great blessing in it, and I trust that for all of us, uh, we will too, as the Lord's Spirit opens his word find great blessing as well. Let's pray. We do indeed ask, Lord, that you might teach us now by your spirit. We thank you for what it is that we can learn about you and your world and about us. And we pray, Father, that we indeed might know you more deeply and trust you more as we hear you right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it does seem that everyone has a natural future focus in life. We're intrigued what will happen in the days and the months and the years and even the decades that are ahead of us, especially with all those changes to technology. Uh, there are some people who really find this to be their thing. They're, they're known as futurists, or I, I learned a new word yesterday called futurologists. There you go. Uh, they try and work out what the future is like and help us to plan accordingly or to mock them incessantly when they get it wrong. <laughs> uh, they make all sorts of predictions about how we will work and relate and play and everything else in the future. And some of those are, in fact, remarkably accurate. Uh, like the prediction in 1968 that we'd have iPads. Or in 1909 that we'd have mobile phones. Or credit cards in 1888. Or the internet in 1898 or movie streaming in 1987, or online shopping in 1967, they, they sit down and they think, we imagine that might be like that in the future, and some of them are quite correct. What is certainly the case is that in the last three years there's been such a major global disruption that some of the things they thought might be five or ten years away have suddenly been raced home for us, like online learning, um, working from home, cashless payments, uh, online church. But as we look to the future, often our focus is more personal. We look to our own future, wondering just what it will be like. Uh, what will I be doing in a year's time? What will I be doing in 10 years' time? Will I be around in 10 years' time? We want to know what the future will hold for us personally. Uh, some people will go and spend money on fortune tellers and psychics to try and get them to tell them what the future is. They may as well just give the money to me, or I'll just throw it away for them. Uh, but there is a kind of fortune teller that, that we do regularly use and that seems to work often, and that is those people who work in pathology and radiology. They, they are able to look deeply into our bodies and say, I've got good news or maybe I've got bad news. All those blood tests, x-rays, CT, PET scans and so on can sometimes identify things that, when they're correctly interpreted, will say, I can tell you what your future is going to be like, and it may well be, and in fact it seems likely that you won't be around just as long as you had originally anticipated. And that is why finding out the future can be painful. It can be painful when we find out just what the future is like. Uh, it would be, it's painful for us as it would be if we were to find out something about the future, that if we knew it was definitely going to happen, and it was going to affect people we knew, it would hurt us a great deal. Like if we knew that our, our spouse or child or parent or friend or ch was to die soon, 
everything in the next day as you're counting down those times, it would be heartbreaking. Do you want to know that kind of future? In a way, I'd rather not. Daniel, in this fascinating chapter, finds a whole lot of stuff out about the future in a vision. And for him, it's painful. We see in the very last verse of this chapter, it says, Then I, Daniel, was overcome and I lay sick for several days. Afterwards, I got up before my duties for the king, but I was greatly troubled by the vision and I could not understand it. Uh, for Daniel to know the future, it was not pleasant. Not pleasant at all, to say the very least. Seeing the future made him physically sick. He knew that what would happen in the future would see the pain and the suffering of many people. And it was horrible for him to see that. And yet even in all of this, there was some hope. Because what he saw in this vision was that evil had a use-by date. It was not going to last forever. There was going to be things that would happen to that evil to stop it. But before we dive into this chapter, I wonder whether we might just stop for a second and, and reflect upon our own future. How do you feel about the future for you? Do you feel secure about the future? Do you know that whatever happens to you personally, that you have certainty for eternity, no matter what? Do you have that confidence in the future, even if your days were to end, even this week? Now, you know, for pretty much everyone in this room, that should be the case if you trust in Jesus. If you've said to Jesus, you are my king and, I, and you know Jesus, I've said to you, I'm sorry for how I lived my own life before, but now I want to live for you. And he'll say, I see you now as righteous, I see you now as forgiven, and you have a certainty for eternity. And so just before we move on, I want to say that if you don't have that certainty for eternity, now is a good time to say, I need to come to Jesus. And I need to say to him, I'm sorry and I want to follow you. And you will know that no matter what happens, you have that certainty for eternity. Isn't that amazing? Because if you trust in Jesus, your future is certain. But with that in mind, thinking about the future and thinking about individual future and all of that stuff... Let's have a look and see what happens to Daniel and what he sees about the future for him and for God's people. Because what he sees about the future will be deeply personal for us individually as well. Start with verse 1. During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision following the one that had already appeared to me. So it's two years after what happened in Daniel 7, the chapter before. Okay, That was in the first year of Belshazzar, this is the third year. Uh, that was the vision that had the four beasts, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, and all that sort of stuff. Okay, So two years after that. Likely that things haven't got any better at all for God's people. They're there under King Belshazzar, who seems to have no respect for God or his people. And so it's a really tough time. And the second thing to notice in this is that it is a vision not a dream. What's the difference between a vision and a dream? Uh, well, I haven't had a vision like this before, but I think it must be like what is experienced by people today as they put on those virtual reality goggles. 
And you sort of, you're suddenly in a different world. You're conscious, you're aware, you can think, but you're seeing stuff and experiencing stuff that's completely different to where you are right now. And it may be looking at something that's not even in the time in which you're at. That is the kind of thing that Daniel is experiencing here. And this is where he's teleported to, verse 2. In this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ulai River. Now, none of those place names may mean much to you at all, but the key is that Susa is at the heart of the Persian Empire. And that's significant because all the stuff that's happening at the moment with Daniel is in the Babylonian Empire. So the Babylonian Empire is this big, mega kind of great world power, and suddenly he's been transformed to the next one, the Persian Empire. You can see that there's a, there's a change here that he gets to witness right here. And it's the start of this shift from Babylon to Persia. One world power to another. And this is what Daniel will see in this vision. There's going to be overlap with what we saw in chapter 7 with those different beasts, represented different empires. But here in particular, we will, we will see these empires here. We'll see Persia and we'll see another. And it begins with another animal, like we've been accustomed to. As I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. What is it? It's another animal and, well, we'll see here, it's another empire. Uh, and you need to realise that, and I said this to last night as well, there were a couple of visitors along, I said, if you come along to church for the first time and you're seeing all this stuff about really, really weird animals and horns and all this kind of stuff, you know, it's good, it's in the Bible, it's weird, and we don't always spend our time looking at these weird animals and things like that, but it happens to be the next bit we're looking at, so sort of buckle up. This, this particular part of the Bible and this particular style of the Bible is what we see often when God's people are in really, really hard times, as Daniel was. And there are other hard times as well. I mentioned this last week, but the, the classic bit of this, where it's solidly there, is the very last book of the whole Bible, the book of Revelation, where the Christians are under massive persecution. And then they get the whole book of Revelation in this style of writing with animals that are weird and white and black and numbers and 666 and all this guys It's all there in this last book of the Bible. This is like that as well. And it pops up in other places, in Isaiah, even in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. We'll look at that in a little while too. So that's worth seeing in all of this. And it does turn out that this is actually a word that will be bringing comfort to people in a time of persecution. Anyway, let's have a look at this first animal, the ram. How's the ram going? What's the ram up to? Verse 4. The ram butted everything out of its way to the west, to the north and to the south and no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased and became very great. Was this a nice, nice ram? No, no, no. This ram was smashing all the other kingdoms. Smash, smash, smash. But it wasn't going to last for very long. Because we read in verse 5a that while I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. You know what I thought when I was reading this? 
road runner, bleep, bleep. You, you, know, you, know, kind of, you never actually see the road runner's feet when he's running. It's like, and that's kind of, you know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're, you're too young. But I think I'm looking around here, I think I'm, I'm largely safe from this. But it, here comes road runner, the goat. Verse 5b, this goat, which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed towards the two-horned ram that I'd seen standing beside the river, rushing at him in a rage. Well, what happens next? The goat charged furiously at the ram, struck him, broke off both his horns, and now the ram was helpless, and the goat knocked him down and trampled him. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. What happens? The goat knocks over the ram. One empire is smashed by the next empire that comes in and with great conflict. The goat's there, goat's having a good time, but it doesn't last. Verse 8. The goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. In the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. So that great king of the second empire, which people tend to say may well be Alexander the Great, uh, was replaced by other kings within that empire. And then one of those kings became very powerful, verse 9. And then from one of the prominent horns, it says, came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended towards the south and the east and toward the glorious land of Israel. This king would be very powerful. And what is significant about this is that he has got his eyes on God's people. He's actually lining up Israel and saying, I am going to smash you. And that will hurt David. Because David is one of them. That's where he's come from. He was ripped out of Jerusalem with all the other Jews. Well, actually, not all the Jews, because many of them were killed. But some of the Jews were taken to Babylon. That's the story of Daniel. Had to learn a new language, learn a new culture, assimilate. And the whole thing is, is God really in control? All of that's happening. And Daniel is seeing now that it's going to happen again. And this horrible horn, this little horn, will cause such damage. And how will that work? Well, verse 10, we read that its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. Uh, we're not entirely sure what that means. Again, it's apocalyptic language, but clearly his violent rule attacked even the heavenly army. And more, verse 11 and 12, it even challenged the commander of heaven's army by cancelling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion and so the daily sacrifice was halted and truth was overthrown. The horn succeeded in everything it did. It's a picture of another destruction of the temple. It's a picture of a person who came in and caused extreme violence. The violence against God's people was extreme. It was it bad before? Is it worse? Don't know, but it's just utterly horrible. Uh, it, it reminds me a little bit about what it's like when they burn churches and they confiscate Bibles and they kill Christians. It's actually a lot like what's happening in, for example, northern Nigeria as we speak. 
Daniel's seeing this vision of the future and he's thinking, oh, in the future this is going to happen? Someone else is going to come in and do more damage? It's horrible for him to see this picture of suffering. Horrible to see this picture of persecution. What are the kind of questions that we ask when we see suffering like this? What, what have you asked in your heart, in your in the quietness, in the, the privacy of your own soul as you have gone through difficult times? What are the questions that spring to mind? I, I think the natural first one in so many ways is why? Why is this happening, Lord? Why is there suffering? If you can do anything, why don't you stop it now? If you're loving, why don't you prevent it? Now, I can only give a short answer today. But the very short answer is that because he's given us choice and responsibility and we've rejected him and this is what happens. This is what the world is like when we reject God. But why is not the only question. There's another question that often comes and we hear it time and time again in the scriptures and that is, how long? How long is this going to happen, Lord? We know you're sovereign and it's really horrible how long? How long in the world? How long in my life? Because when you realise that God's in control and that he's promised to ultimately deal with suffering and evil, it's like, Lord, what is stopping you doing it now? That's the question these guys, a couple of people asked themselves in this vision. Verse 13, they say two holy ones were talking to each other. One of them asked, how long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple and heaven's army be trampled on? How long? How long? How long? This person laments the suffering of God's people. They lament the rebellion that causes desecration and the trampling of the temple and it breaks their heart. which the other person says, ah, 2,300 evenings and mornings and then the temple will be made right again. I think that's a curious answer that someone would say, like, you know, they've almost got a calculator. Ah, I have the answer. It's like 2,300. Oh, how does that work? What, what does this mean? Well, essentially it means this. Evil has an end date. A long time but not forever. Uh, 2,300 evenings and mornings, that's a bit over six years. Is that what it means? Some say yes. I don't think so. I, I think with others that this is apocalyptic writing. Numbers aren't to be taken necessarily at face value any more than we are to expect a literal goat smashing up a literal ram. And so if that is the case, I think what we're to see is that it's a long time, but it's a fixed time. It's not forever. And that's got to bring some comfort, doesn't it? It's got to bring some comfort to know that evil has a use-by date, an end date. There is a time when they will finally pull the plug out of evil and smash it up. And that is great comfort. And yet it's hard still because when you... No, when you're Daniel and you see that all this is going to happen and it's so far into the future, it's like, uh, 
okay, I'm pleased it's going to end, but it's going to be really hard until it does, won't it? And the answer is yes. And for Daniel, he needed to see that he needed to be patient even though it's hard. And there's a sense in which that is true for us as well. Evil has a due date, but it's in the future. But there's a nuance to that, which we'll see in a moment. Daniel's seen this vision, okay? He's trying to work it all out, and then he gets a vision. Sorry, he gets a visit, okay, in this vision. Verse 15, he says, I... As I, Daniel, was trying to understand the meaning of this vision, someone who looked like a man stood in front of me. It wasn't a man, but it looked like a man. And I heard a human voice that wasn't a human, but it was a human-sounding voice, calling out from the Uli River, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of his vision. So it's weird. There's someone who looks like a man and a voice that sounds like a man, and they're there speaking to Daniel. And this is what it said. As Gabriel approached the place where I, Daniel, was standing, I became so terrified that I fell on my face to the ground. Son of man, he said to me, Daniel, you must understand that the events you have seen in your vision relate to the time of the end. Daniel is so overwhelmed that he just falls to the ground. Uh, Sometimes you want to do this. Other times it's like, I just give up. Uh, And that's what he does. He just falls to the ground. And he hears from this man that the events relate to the time of the end is this the very end of history as we know it i don't think it is it's possible i don't think it is and you'll see why i think that's the case in a moment he is talking about the time of the end he's talking about a particular time in history when this evil when this era of evil will come to an end even if it's not the end of human history just a bit of a clue to what i think is going to see we'll see in a moment anyway daniel reacts even more to this person-like visit verses 18 and 19 he says while he was speaking i fainted and lay there with my face to the ground but gabriel roused me with a touch and helped me to my feet and then he said i am here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. From time to time, I will say, I love our translation, but here's another one that I think probably captures it a little bit better. The NIV for that verse, I think, does a better job. Uh, It says, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. That's a little bit more clunky in its speech, which is why the NLTs tried to smooth out some bumps. I think it took off some of the good bits with the bumps. Because what we see here is, I think in all of this, spoiler alert, I think the time of wrath is actually the death of Jesus. Not the very end of history. And we'll see more about that in a moment. And that's why I think the NIV's more exact translation actually gives us that possibility that I think is indeed the case. We'll come to more of that in a moment. But anyways, Gabriel helps Daniel to his feet and gives him a cup of tea and a bicky. He starts to explain to him the horrific vision. He says from verse 20, the two-horned ram, that's the first one, remember, that represents the kings of Medea and Persia. The shaggy male goat, roadrunner, he represents the king of Greece. 
And the large horn between his eyes represents the very first king of the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great. The four prominent horns that replaced the one large horn show that the Greek Empire will break into four kingdoms, but none as great as the first. Okay, so this is kind of what we thought would be the case. Two animals, two empires with various kingdoms that come and go. But then he speaks of a fierce king, which we might be able to identify him, uh, perhaps as even Antiochus IV, but it may be talking more generally about the greatest evil leader of all, which I think we are to understand it with that sort of aspect. Have a read with me from verse 23 to 25. At the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. He will be a master of deception. Sound familiar? And will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle. But he will be broken, though not by human power. Right. Are we getting some clues there? I think the fierce king here is the ultimate enemy of God. Perhaps even Satan himself. Antichrist. And he will not rule forever. It's going to come to an end, verse 26. This vision about the 2300 evenings and mornings is true, but none of these things will happen for a long time into the future, so keep this vision a secret. Daniel's been given all this stuff. It's landed in his lap, and he's like, what do I do with all of this, this horrible stuff that's going to happen in the future? How do I cope with this? And the answer is he feels sick. Here's the last verse that we read before. I, Danny, was overcome and lay sick, literally, for seven days. Couldn't get out of bed. But afterward, I, afterward I got up, performed my duties for the king, but I was greatly troubled by the vision and I couldn't understand it. And that's the end of the chapter. This vision has hope. But a whole lot of horrible things are going to happen before that day. And Daniel's like, oh, that's horrible. And it makes him physically sick. But here's the key. Daniel's future is not our future. Daniel's future is actually our past. And the approved time of the end, to use that clunky but accurate expression, I think we see from this, it's actually happened. Even though we don't fully experience the relief from the pain just yet. And that event, that approved time of the end, that time of the end was the death of Jesus. I think that's what this is talking about here. And, well, I didn't really come up with this. It's what Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24. We looked at Matthew 24 a few months ago. And there was stuff there that you may or may not have picked up. But have a look at this. Verse 15. Jesus said, just before he died, The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, Jesus said. The sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. Cool. What's that talking about then? 
Jesus is talking about Daniel chapter 8. And he's talking about the rebellion that causes desecration. Or the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. And Matthew, as he's writing it there, sitting there, typing away in his typewriter, well, not literally, he's kind of looking up from the moment and he's sort of staring through that, 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 that sort of prophetic curtain to the reader saying, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. That's what the reader, you know, let the reader understand. He's actually saying this particular event here, the desecration of the temple, the presence of God amongst us, is actually the murder of the Messiah. God amongst us. That is the desecration. That's the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Now, that happened a little bit more literally with Antiochus IV and, and also someone had another crack at it about 40 AD as well, uh, in a sense, and we can see some of these things. But you look at it here and it's kind of like saying, this, Jesus is saying, it's the death of Jesus. It's the death of the Messiah that is going to be this thing. This is the moment when it seemed that the greatest force of evil had achieved a victory. And yet this fierce king, this master of deception, Satan himself, would eventually lose his power. As we read a few moments ago, verse 25 of Daniel 8, he will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He'll even take on the prince of princes in battle. Jesus. But he'll be broken by not by human power, but by divine power. The master of deception was destroyed by divine power. He's broken by divine power. And his death, the death of Jesus, gave people the same reaction that Daniel experienced in the vision. They were shocked. They were horrified. They were dismayed. But three days later, the ultimate proof of, came of Satan's defeat. And that was the empty tomb. As we read in 1 Corinthians 15, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel looked forward to a day when evil would stop. It was a long way into the future for him. If you get out calendars, and you'll see we're talking like 500 years. That's a really long time. But for us, it's in our past. And the event of the cross of Christ, when God's chosen Messiah, when he was brutally executed... That was the abomination that caused desolation. For, but at that particular event, the great ruler lost. And the Son of Man received his authority. As we read, as Jesus said a few verses later in Matthew chapter 24, just after that, he said, And then... At last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth as they see Jesus die, of course. But then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with heaven, uh, with, great, with power and great glory. And what will happen next? 
And he will send out his angels, his messengers, with the mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Sounds just like Matthew 28, when Jesus says, All authority has been given to me. And what did he say? Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations. Don't you use this? Gather my chosen ones from all over the world. That has happened. The Son of Man has come. He's received his power and authority. And now we, his messengers, his angels, have gone to the ends of the earth to declare his good and perfect rule. And so now, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the ultimate destruction of Satan. We are in, as that first question from Question Time this morning said, we are in this now but not yet, where Satan has been mortally wounded. Doesn't stop him running around. Doesn't stop him deceiving. Doesn't stop him causing rebellion. But the time will come soon between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. When the second coming, when that end will happen fully. Because then, as we read in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. Jesus is returning soon, and when he does, we will experience in full what he achieved at the cross. We will experience the final destruction of evil. But in the meantime, we wait. We wait. We wait as we see even more persecuted or more followers of Jesus persecuted. More churches burnt down. More schoolgirls abducted. We wait for Jesus' return as we weep. Which means that we end up feeling the same way as Daniel in many ways. We have hope. We know that evil has an end date, but we still feel stick to the stomach. And so we cry with those who cry out to Jesus, as it says in the very second last verse of the entire Bible. He who is faithful witness to all these things, says Jesus says, I am coming soon, to which the congregation says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Friends, we're going to end by singing a song. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In many ways, this is a response. And I wonder if you might sing it that way. Would you please stand as we sing?